You are listening to Rav Cook on the Haggadah with Yiska Smith, a podcast series from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. For more original Torah content, visit elmad.pardes.org. Welcome to Jewish Soul Food, providing spiritual food and nourishment to the soul, where we may encounter the divine presence within, and perhaps hear the soul's unique still small voice, Hakol de Mamadaka, gently leading and guiding each of us on the sweet path of authentic living. Currently, we are exploring some of Rav Cook's illuminating insights on the Haggadah Shel Pesach. The focus will be on moving from the space of spiritual enslavement to freedom, from a place of scarcity to one of abundance, and from a limited consciousness to an expanded one. So last week, we moved into, into Magid, the section of the Haggadah where we tell the story, either the historical story, our story, where we are able to hear and listen and give a, give a platform and a space for each other to share their stories, a moving from enslavement to freedom. And we quoted the words, we talked about the section where we quote from Devarim, Chafav Chet, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 26, verse 8. How did Hashem take us out? And we discussed Rav Cook's understanding as he contrasted the difference between a Yad Chazaka, a strong hand, and an outstretched arm. So, Bekitzer, the strong hand, refers to the sudden, dramatic intervention of God in our history. It's true, truly revolutionary. It's this sudden enlightenment. As we say in Aramaic, Itaruta de la The outstretched arm is more or less this invitation to then be part of one's own evolution, as contrasted with revolution. It's inspiration that comes from within. It's the human nature as it becomes more and more refined organically, specifically for the Jew, as the Torah becomes integrated and absorbed within the framework of nature, rather than the Yad Chazakah bending the laws of nature. So it's the part of our growth we were very much involved in living in time and place, and it comes from within. We move along gradually. And we discussed last week, while this occurs in anyone's journey, for example, the historical journey of B'nai Yisrael, coming out of Egypt and then the 40 years in the wilderness, eventually leading their children into Eretz Israel. 
It also happens in the individual journeys. And it happens in our historical as a nation journey. So we are part now of that journey, both as individuals, as Jews, as human beings. And that's what we discussed last week. What I'd like to share... Oh, were there any questions before we move to a new section of Magid? Do we have any questions, insights, revelations, sudden revelations? <laughs> Revolutionary ones or evolutionary ones? Okay, so I'm trying to remember. We were going to. I don't have my notes, but I but I asked you if we could specifically zone in on something. You said good idea, and we'll do it when we next week. And I'm trying to remember what it was. <laughs> <laughs> And that's why I probably asked you to write it down. Uh, Did anyone write it down? I do recall now. I don't. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I I didn't write it down. Mm. I'm sure it will. One of the things I'm curious about, maybe this will prompt some ideas about what it was. What are the conditions uh, within which, you know, I might feel either the strong hand or the outstretched arm? You know, it's, I, I conceptually understand what you're talking about, Yiskin. I'm sorry I wasn't here last week, and maybe it was more explained, better explained in detail, but I'm just trying to... How can I how could I actually position myself in time and space so that I could be receptive to either one of those ways of progressing or changing or moving forward? Well, that's, well, that's such an amazing question. Yes, because it's happening all the time and some people the transmitter is transmitting but the receiver is not always receiving. Yes. So what do we need to do as receivers? We need to turn ourselves on to the transmission. So we need to first, I, I believe, I'm just sharing from my own experience, and I think part of the answer is there is no one answer. This is not a mitzvah, of separating, let's say, meat from dairy. (laughs) This is a God consciousness. This is really developing uh, a God consciousness. Much of what Reb Simcha Bunim's teacher, the Yehudi, talked about, who he was a Talmud Chacham, but yet all the learning of Torah cannot teach a God consciousness. It's a different approach to living. So part of the answer is to believe this, is to believe this, that actually it can happen. And then maybe the next step would be to seek it, to be open, just by being open. 
this is something that cannot be manipulated, it cannot be forced. I'm talking about the first one, the Yad Chazakah. One of the ways we make ourselves open, and it's a short piece we're actually may discuss today, if not today, next week, <clears throat> is we have to realize that where we are is not where we really want to stay. For spiritual reasons, wherever we are is where we need to be in the moment. But with that comes the danger of apathy, status quo, as I used the word earlier in another discussion, complacency. We need to wake up every morning, like Heschel says, and be radically amazed and go through the day where we're looking to be amazed at our own very lives. And that's moving more into a consciousness where we are turning on ourselves as the receiver. So the example I gave last week about my own self when I had this sudden, oh my gosh, I'm halfway across the Atlantic Ocean at 20 years old, and I realized I'm taking all all that information for the different countries that I thought I could, in my wildest dreams, now I can explore, and just threw it all in the garbage, because I realized I'm going to Israel. Where did that come from? Part of what that came from was I set out on a search. That whole year, in my whole sophomore year in college, I knew I had to move forward. I had no idea what to do, where to go, why. I just felt such rumblings inside. So yes, I didn't land up in this country rather than that country, or I didn't go here rather than there. I went to Israel because I was open to something different, having no idea in mind that would be what it came to be. Likewise, though, and and this is the next step and the longer work, is once it happens, is for me to gracefully and gently receive it, honor it, and then the real work begins. Then the real work begins. What does that mean, the real work begins? I'll, I'll, I'll explain. That's the inner work. See, the outer comes because it's outside of us. We can't manufacture it. We can't determine it. Like, you can be in a situation as I was, and something happens, and it can be a turning point in your life. But that moment of it can be a turning point in life, that's the opportunity. If it actually becomes a turning point, is what you do with it. So, for example, after this wonderful couple of weeks ago, this wonderful 48-hour silent retreat, guided silent retreat at Kibbutz Hanaton in the Galil. So that would be like the Itaruta de la Ela. That would be like the arousal from above because we were guided by somebody else into a deeper place inside of us. 
each one of us. At the end, when Rav James shared his closing remarks, he said he thanked us all for coming, for being present, and he said, and now the retreat begins. You see, that, that's the, now that you've been here and you've been inspired, you've received from outside of you, you've been guided, now as you leave and go back to Yerushalayim, to Tel Aviv, to Beersheba, to Haifa, wherever you may be living, and you get up tomorrow morning and go back to work, whatever that is, and you're back with your family, now is when the retreat begins. What I hear you saying, and what I bring my own experience to what you're saying, are for me the questions. Uh, you know, you don't have to be dissatisfied with your life or on the verge of a major event or lacking something big in your life to receive the guidance, the inner guidance of what what's next, I, but I think that it's important to be conscious of the question. There's a restlessness inside me, or something doesn't feel right. What is it? What is it? And just be always listening for what that answer is going to be when it comes. What is it, what is it that I need? What is it that I'm wanting? And, and I think that you know, for most of us, our lives are so comfortable. You know, it's hard to realize that we have everything that we need. So how can we be saying, I'm not satisfied? <laughs> you know, I'm restless. And what is the nature of that? So it takes, I think, some real deep work to investigate. Well, what is that? What is that that I feel like I'm laughing? It's a great, it's a, it's a wonderful, it, it's true, what you, not only true what you're saying, it's such an important, it's such an important part in a person's journey to not fall into the trap that just because one's life is not filled with either physical or mental or emotional pain, that that means that one cannot move forward in one's journey from a place of gratitude from a place of gratitude, not necessarily as when the was when B'nai Yisrael cried out in the beginning of the book of Exodus, and the, the, the B'nai Yisrael cried out and groaned and moaned. So that's one way of being open to change, is realizing that this is this hurts. I don't want to stay here. Yeah, that makes it easy. Well, it makes it easy for you. Well, it's, it's a much more dramatic opening. Yeah, yeah. But there are many people who who stay in that place because there's an assortment of reasons. Yeah. Fear, shame, low self-esteem, a lack of self-respect, a real victimized mentality. I mean, there are many people who stay in a place where there's a lot of pain. And it doesn't only have to be physically physical pain. It can be spiritual, again, spiritual, mental, emotional. However, 
moving from a place of gratitude, being grateful for whatever today has brought me as I prepare to go to bed each night, but not being entrapped by it, not being enslaved by it, to expect that tomorrow has to be the same in order for me to be grateful. To the contrary, that's why Heschel said, spiritual living is living in radical amazement. So there's always a sense of discomfort. It's just not always painful. The, the word I feel more comfortable in sharing is agitation. Comfortable agitation. You know, like on a washing machine when the agitator cleans the clothes, <laughs> right? Is to always be in that state where one is relaxed, one is grateful when one can be, but at the same time realizing that the soul is like this flame that flickers. You know when we stare at a candle and we look at the flame? So the ambiance in the room can be one of peace, can be one of gentleness, can be one that's prone to be more connecting within ourselves and to each other. There's a stillness. But if you look at the flame, the flame is always moving. And that's what I'm talking about here. It's a gentle agitation. It's realizing in my present moment, this is where I am. But tomorrow, if I try to live in my present yesterday, I'm already back in Egypt. I'm back in my own spiritual Mitzrayim. So how does that, I mean, I'm going to tell you what my experience is because I'm struggling with a little bit about what you're saying. I'm going in a maybe, probably maybe a different place, but I find sometimes that um, being in a place of gratitude is really scary. Right? Because my own experience is that the 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 uh, uh, what's that you know that the sky can fall down at any moment, and if I get too grateful and too, it's almost like a, a Nahora. Yeah. You know, like I'm scared to like just say, okay, it is good because just even thinking that is going to be like, oh my god, it's suddenly my world's going to turn apart, and that'll be it. <laughs> So I don't know how that relates to what you were saying, but that was what was going through my head as you were talking about being in a place of gratitude, but yet not counting on it. You know, not, that's why I, what I heard, but maybe you well, didn't say well, so. Yeah, and, and, and actually what I'm hearing is something similar to what I'm saying. To, look, to wake up every morning and say, Moda or Moda Ani, the very first words we put into the world is, thank you. Thank you, God, for having enough faith in me to give me another day to live. Okay, where do we go with that? Where do we go with the gratitude? How does that shape? How does that inform our own personal narrative for the day? It, it for some, for some of us, it's what helps us not be cynical. If for some of us, it's what helps us believe in more 
in the capacity to be more, for this nutiya, for this zora nutiya to really work in my life. For me to accept, me, I'm using all of us here, for each one of us to accept this invitation, the divine invitation to be part of our own journey, to be part of our own creation, co-creating ourselves with God. When that comes from gratitude, yes, it can lead to, oh my gosh, I'm so grateful for all these berchot. At any moment, if I'm not really careful, they'll all go away. Maybe instead of going in that direction, we can go in another direction. I'm so grateful for all these wonderful blessings. How can I honor them in this moment? Because they can be taken away any moment. So how can I be in, how can I be present with the brachot? How can I use gratitude to really inform, I guess, inform my day, knowing that at any given moment I could, at 120 for all of us, however that turns out, but any exhalation can be my last. Now how do we live through a day knowing that? by just realizing that who we are, how we are, who we are with, what we're doing, is not by coincidence. There's a divine plan here. We're part of something so much bigger. And the degree to which we can participate in that bigness, in that expansive space, is greatly determined by how much gratitude we actually feel about where we are, knowing that this is only the beginning. As someone once told me, one of my teachers, the sign of fulfilled life, and again, Admeya Ve'esrim, or Admeya Ke'esrim, however you look at the phrase, we should all live and be well with physical health, mental health, emotional health, spiritual health, but when we exhale our last breath, may we all say to God, But wait a minute, I'm just beginning. I'm just beginning. That's the sign of a life of gratitude with fulfillment. We're all going to pass to the next world. We all know that. How we live, though, presently will so much determine how we leave this world. So a person can live in fear of losing Or a person can live with trust, with trust. And the other dimension, if I may add, or the other component to this is, we don't own our lives. We're invited to co-create it with the Creator. So the brachot that we, each one of us, receive, they're not ours to keep. They're ours to use with gratitude, so we can be more free to be who God has designed each one of us to be. So we can use those brachot to be more present, to be more open-hearted, to be more loving and compassionate, to be in that expanded space. But we don't own it. That's the gift. 
It's like receiving a priceless painting from someone on loan. <laughs> well, your soul, each one of our souls is worth a lot more than the most expensive Michelangelo or Picasso or Monet. Oh, if I could have an original Monet, I think, oh, if I could have an original Monet in my home, one of the lilies. Oh, think of what a bracha that would be. But I already have something that's even worth more than the Monet. Any Monet. My soul. Some things are just priceless. <laughs> yes. What you're all talking about, though, what you're all sharing, and thank you so much for really being open with yourselves and sharing this, because this is how we develop God consciousness. This is not found in the pshat of one verse. This is not found in one halacha in the Shulchan Aruch or one daf of Gemarah. This is a consciousness. And part of our learning Torah moves us in that consciousness. But the deeper work is what this is. This is the Torah Shabbalpeh in motion. So I think at this point, may we move on? I'm not sure if that's exactly what we said last week we shall begin today's class with, but we did. <clears throat> so another section in the telling, in the Magid, which comes shortly after <clears throat> the Yad Chazakah and the Zoranatiyah, is a paragraph, I'll, I'll read it slowly in Hebrew, it may be familiar to some of you, and from that, there's part of what Rav Cook will teach. Baruch Shomer Haftachato Yisrael. Blessed is he, the one who guards his promise to, to the Jewish people. Baruch Hu, blessed be he. Okay, what was the promise? What is the, this promise? Shakotesh Baruch Hu Chishav Et because only the Holy One, blessed be He, figures out when the end will be, meaning the end implied here in the Galut. La'asot, in order to fulfill, and this, these are the two pesukim, and Rav Cook quotes from these two pesukim. Kamasha emala Avraham avinu bavut ben habitarim. Just as quoted as what was said to Avraham, actually his name was still Avram, it was even before his Brit Milah. It's during this covenant between the pieces. And these are the verses. Shane'amar, V'yomer la'avram, and he said to Avram, Yadoa teida, you shall surely know, ki ger za'acha, that your descendants, your seed, will be in a, in a land that's not theirs. Be'eretz lo lehem, there'll be a ger, there'll be a ger that, there'll be, a, your, your seed will be a nation, but they'll be in a land that's not theirs. When we think of a nation, we think of a nation being its own land. But what's, you don't have this, by the way, in the text. We're going to learn out a piece of it. This is the context for it. And when they're in that land that's not theirs, even though they'll become a nation, <laughs> those people shall enslave them and oppress them. That's the word, 
400 years. That's where we get the 400 years from. And also I, the nation, that foreign nation that is doing this, that is causing your future generations to be enslaved, I'm going to judge them. I will judge them. And this is what Rav Cook now picks up on. And after I judge them, they, meaning your seed, your descendants, will go out. But they'll not only go out, they'll go out with great wealth. So this is the promise that we retell every year at the Pesach Seder. That blessed be the one who keeps his promise. And the promise was, just as your nation, just as your descendants will become a nation, but there'll be a foreign, there'll be a foreign people in someone else's land, and they will be oppressed, I will judge that nation, and they will come out with great wealth. Okay. Does anyone have any questions on those two verses? They're, oh, they're found in Bereshit Tetvav, Yud Gimel and Yud Dalad. Genesis 15, 13, and 14. So I think we're all familiar with the Peshat, with the the basic meaning of it. Okay, well, as you would think, as all of us would expect of Rav Cook, there's nothing simple about this. There's nothing simple, especially the phrase... They will go out with great wealth. So for the Rav to teach what he's going to teach, he first, what Rav Cook brings down is another pasuk that leads into his teaching, which you see quoted there from the book of Shemot. From the book of Shemot, Yud Aleph Bet. I'll read for you the whole pasuk there. It's very interesting. There's a very interesting word that's used in this pasuk. V'yitain Hashem. Wait a minute. I think I just lost my place. Hold on one second, please. Wait a minute. Yes. Yud Aleph Bet. Oh yeah, my eyes jumped. Okay. So this is like Hashem talking to Moses, to Moshe, of what will occur when we are now going to come out of Egypt. Daber Na. Speak, please. Now we know that it's good to have good manners. Nimus. I mean, it's good to really have derech eretz. But we very seldom see God expressing to Moses, please, or in the biblical term, na. So that, to the reader, to to the biblical critic, to the thinker, to someone who learns even Peshat, that word na, raises a red flag. Why is God all of a sudden being so, quote, polite? Really? I mean, God has given us 613 commandments. I don't recall... 
a pasuk, I may be mistaken, where he prefaces a command with the word, would you please? <laughs> right? Here he's saying, na, please speak into the ears of the nation and speak the following. That every man should ask of his neighbor and every woman shall ask of her neighbor. Vessels of silver and vessels of gold. This is not a commandment. This is not one of the 613 commandments. Hashem is asking Moshe, please, would you mention to the B'nai Yisrael to please ask their neighbors as they're leaving Egypt for their gold and silver, and by extension, all of that which would, you know, make them physically amass a great abundance of wealth. Why do you think, before we read Rav Cook's explanation, <clears throat> why do you think God would do that? <clears throat> do you feel, do you see that it's odd that the, the, the use of the word nah here, it's almost, we're uncomfortable with it. It's almost Moshe, you could hear Moshe saying, Mapitom, like why are you being so polite? You know when someone's like really polite, like if you have a child and they want to extend their curfew, so they'll say, oh, you know, mom, dad, wow, you know, I really like mom, the new dress you got, and dad, you know, how was your day? And okay, what's going on here? Oh, um, please, <clears throat> you know, I want to, do you have a few minutes? I want to talk to you about something, please. Okay. This is not usually how you speak to me. What's the please? What's the compliments? Something new is going to happen. And something new happens here. What is God using the word nah for? Why do you think he's doing this? To make it easier for them to hear. And yes, and why? Why? In fact, why would it have to be easy for them to hear? Why why would it not be easy? Maybe because they're not used to as slaves. Mm-hmm. They're not used to asking for something. <laughs> <laughs> so let's say they go out because they're slaves and they're not used to asking, especially of their just emancipated from taskmasters. I mean, could you imagine the the, the African American, the people of color, when their great great grandparents after the Civil War, as they were leaving the plantations, said, "Oh, by the way, you know, you owe us a lot of money because we were forced here against our will, as we were treated like your property, and we worked and made you wealthy. By the way, you owe us the following, and we'll make our cheshbon and figure out how many years and how much a good fair wage." No, what did they do? They ran. They ran. We were about to run. Mamash bechipazon. In haste. In haste. Now let's say we would have done that. Let's say we would have done that. Okay, so. So we didn't leave with their gold and silver. So what? At least we left. What's the 
but there's a there's a development of like self-respect, you know, of valuing uh, what well, a few things. One of them is you know is valuing yourself, right? Saying I'm right, yes, and, yes, and as well as the ability to be assertive and ask for what you want or what you need or those are thoughts that came to my head. That's, 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 that's very, very, that's very, very true. Very, and that's part that's of true. becoming free. Mm-hmm. There's another, and, and that's a, my gosh, that's according to some Perushim, that's in fact why we did need to spend 40 years in the Midbar. Like, even though originally in the ideal world, we were set, we were poised to go right into Eretz Yisrael, right after the building and the dedication of the, of the Mishkan. And then there was the suggestion that we send spies ahead of us just to explore, just so we know where we're going. And because if we know what happened when they came back, so on and so forth, that led to now we're going to spend 40 years and there'll be a new generation that will be now coming into Israel 40 years later, a year for each day that the spies were there. And much of that, to your point, was we moved from a slave mentality to a free person's consciousness. There's something else going on here. Let's go into the text and see what, pardon me? Okay. No, no, go ahead. Yeah. I, I mean, where, where I? Go, go, go for it. Well, do you know what you're saying? There is a great sense of courage to go and ask the Egyptian oppressors for their gold and silver after the enslavement mentality. So we take what what God is asking in his in his use of the word nah is maybe a, a gentle way to recognize that these childlike people who were living for their lives in a slave mentality, he's he's coaxing them maybe to go and literally transform the, their relationship with their enslavers and ask for gold and silver. But then on top of that, when I think about what we studied a week or so ago with this, with the golden calf, and here it was this very gold and silver that was used to make the calf. And I never made that association mm-hmm. before, that it had come from the Egyptian enslavers. Never question, like, where did all the Israelites get all the gold that melted into the calf? So it's this gold, right? I mean, where else? Some of it. Some of it. Some of it. Yeah, not all of it. Not all of it. But some of it, yes. Yes. So so could, could we say, if we took some of it, that part of the melting of the gold into the calf was another way of disassociating from the enslavement, or is that carrying it too far? Uh, I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't say it's too far. I wouldn't say it's too far at all. Uh, there, there's many commentaries on why, in fact, some people did contribute to the golden calf, others didn't. For example, the women refused to give their gold to Aharon. They very readily surrendered it to build the Mishkan, to build the tabernacle, but they refused to participate in the golden calf, which is why, well, <clears throat> okay, there's, never mind. Uh, <laughs> <clears throat> no, there's just so many, there's so many ways we can go, so many areas to go from there, but but I'd rather not. The At, at this point, 
The coaxing, though, I really pick up on the word coaxing is necessary. And let's remember, this is all part of our individual journey also. This is part of uh, why we need to support each other. We need to coax each other gently. And at times, we need to coax each other to ask of the other that which is uncomfortable. For a higher reason, though, there's a higher reason, there's a bigger reason at force here. Let's read a little, a little further and discuss more. <clears throat> this is a great piece. This, was, uh, <clears throat> this is what Rav of Cook now teaches. It was said, and this is based <clears throat> in a piece of Gomorrah in Brachot, on Daf Tet Amud Aleph. So the Masechet, the tractate of Brachot 9a. This is where this comes from. It was said in the Beit Midrash of Rabbi Yanai, Na, please, can only be an expression of request, meaning not command. The Holy One said to Moshe, Please, go say to them, Please ask of the Egyptians vessels of silver and gold. Why? So that Avraham Avinu, so the righteous man, will not say, <clears throat> well, he fulfilled in them, they shall enslave and oppress them, but he did not fulfill in them, and afterwards they shall go out with great wealth. Remember the two Pesukim that this is a teaching from, that we read in this portion, beginning with the words, Baruch Shomer Haftachato L'Yisrael, Blessed be the one who keeps his promise to Yisrael. Now Yisrael, are the Jewish people that were assured, that were promised through this promise to Avraham, which was then given to Yitzhak and given to Yaakov and then through all of Yaakov's children to all of us. This is a promise God made. So he realized, God realized that we were not going to, do, we were not going to come out with a Rechush Gadol if we didn't ask of the Egyptians for their for their wealth. So to keep his word for Avraham, so Avraham wouldn't, now read this metaphorically too in this piece of Gomorrah, there's an Avraham inside of us. And we're allowed to say to God, wait a minute, I get that you've put me into this situation, right? I understand I needed to be in where I'm at for me to do my tikkun. But you've also told me that when I come out of the tikkun, I'll be in a better place. Where's the better place? And Rav Cook is quoting the actual piece of Gomorrah that supposes this is the dialogue that will go on, the heavenly celestial dialogue between Avraham speaking with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Well, wait a minute. It's nice that you've kept one part of your promise, actually two parts of your promise, you know, they will become a nation, they will be afflicted, they will be freed. However, and that's why Rav Cook only, this is in his commentary, he just picks up on the words, Where's the Rechush Gadol here? Well, because they were thinking like slaves and they wouldn't want to approach the Egyptians. How, okay, I get that, but God, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, why didn't you do something to orchestrate this? And that's in fact what Hashem did, but he did it in a gentle way. 
he did it. It was enough that the that whoever was leaving Egypt that was radical enough, but in his own gentle way, his her own gentle way, what was communicated to Moshe was coaxing. I love that word coaxing. Going to Jen. Coax the Bnei Yisrael. They Bnei Yisrael, reading further in this piece, said. If we would only go out without persons. In other words, just like the slaves who left the plantations, they ran. You think that you think at that point in time, B'nai Yisrael were interested in obtaining gold and silver. They just wanted out. They wanted to out. Remember, no slave ever escaped Egypt, Jew or non-Jew. This was like such a miracle. They just wanted to run. This may be compared this may be compared to a person who is locked in prison and people say to him tomorrow they will release you from prison and give you much money and he says back to them just get me out immediately i don't want to wait till tomorrow for the money i just want out i don't ask for anything more so if in fact hashem would have allowed the situation to unravel the way human nature of a slave who's becoming free would behave, we would have never left with the Chush Gadol, which he was held accountable by his own word to Avraham Avinu. Okay. What does that mean, though? What does that really mean? Do you follow the, the Gemara here based on the Pasukim in Shemot and Bereshit? <clears throat> You can see why, by the way, the Seder can keep people up till it's time to say Shema in the morning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even though you have to eat the Afikomen. I never figured that part out. You have to eat the Afikomen by Chatzot, and yet you can tell the story till the sun rises. Okay, you know what? We should only be in that place. All right. What's your question? That he, my question is, we're exploring five Hebrew words and already we're going we're bringing in a Gemara we're bringing in other Pesukim we're exploring both the psychology the spirituality the Peshat of it all if we we could literally have a Pesach Seder that can take us like we read about the students in Bnei Brak who was getting so late that it was getting early the next morning they had to be reminded it was time to say Shema However, we also have, as a, as a halacha, we're supposed to eat the afikomen, the very last piece of matzah, by a certain time, by the chatzot. <clears throat> okay, let's see what Rav Cook now teaches us. The divine intention of the Jews leaving with great wealth was to uplift the spirit of the people. This is in alignment with what was said before about our self-esteem, about our presence with ourselves, moving from a slave mentality to a free person's mentality, which as a result of years of slavery had been humbled and no longer set its sights on greater goals. Really to your point. Therefore, it was appropriate to accustom the soul to want great material things so that eventually it would come to want great spiritual attainments as well. Now, 
in order to bring out the point that the end goal was not to aspire to the love of silver and gold. The thought was not communicated in the usual form of a command, but rather as a request. Their downtrodden spirit would be uplifted by seeing themselves bearing wealth. While on the other hand, they would know that this is not the end, but rather the means to an end. If it were truly an end, it would have been expressed as a command, as a mitzvah, as a tzivui. But instead, this was a request. The reason Avraham would make this remark, why would he have this re- this celestial, heavenly pushback on HaKadosh Baruch Hu? Like, you know, you fulfilled the first pasuk, but you didn't fulfill the second pasuk. Remember, think about Avraham for a second. It's very clear that he was a wealthy person. I mean, to do all that entertaining that he's known for, you know, from... And and to have the amount of servants, to have the amount of cattle, he was very much pictured. We learn from the Peshat that he was a person of means. What did he use that for? What did he use his means for? To share. He shared his means in order to bring people closer to the recognition to the acknowledgement, to the encountering of the divine. And that's why there's that Midrash that said that every time he would bring someone into his tent, before he would speak, Sarah would offer them all types of Sarah Amenu, Sarah, our matriarch, our mother would offer them all kinds of food and drink and to be physically comfortable. These were people that Avram would take in, and you can also use this metaphorically, see the metaphoric meaning, people that are just wandering themselves or journeying in their own wilderness. And they were ushered into a place where they were given food and drink, physically, where they became physically comfortable. And then Avram began to talk about God. So that's our prototype right there. That's the business model. So that's why when Hashem said they will come out with the Rechush Gadol, it's really in alignment with you, Avraham Avinu. You have a lot of wealth. And look at how you use your wealth. That's how they will use their wealth. However, they won't jump for it because they're still slaves and they just want to run out. So here, Rav Cook explains something very, very important. It's not that Avraham would just, he's keeping a scorecard you know, Lahav deal. I mean, God forbid, well, God, you kept this, you kept that, but you didn't keep this, you didn't keep... No, there's a deeper meaning why there would be in heaven, as the Gomorra, you know, suggests, this celestial pushback on God. Because as Rav Cook explains, the reason Avraham would make this remark is because his entire purpose in life, meaning Avraham's, was to establish a nation aware of God, who would proclaim his great name, God's great name, in the world, just as he, Avraham, Avraham had while he lived, to influence 
many nations, there is required greatness of soul. But also the aspiration to material wealth. For it is through trade that peoples come close to and learn from one another. Thus, through Israel's pursuit of wealth, provided the trading is fair and just, what results? There results the desired goal of God's light shining into the world. If Israel would have trained their sights on humbler goals, if they had been satisfied being shepherds and farmers who do not interact with the global market, then how would the light of God spread through the world? So Avraham, with his higher agenda, requests that his descendants, after having undergone the lesson in humility, provided by the smeltery, the very refinery of Egypt, that they become now accustomed to the global social interaction that will come about as a result of their desire to accumulate wealth. Livriot. Very similar to his journey in Lech Lecha. This is a Lech Lecha journey coming out of Mitzrayim. The comparison above is most apt. Israel are compared to prisoners incapable of imagining a fortune greater than their release from prison. So that they had to be goaded or coaxed to ask for more. And my friends, what you have here, this last sentence from Rav Cook, is what people call today a galut way of thinking. This is a galut consciousness. It was birthed, it was introduced in Egypt, and it has stayed with us for thousands and thousands of years. And for Rav Cook, whose teachings are all layered again with the beginnings of, even before the sun rises, the very light, the beginning light of the day of the establishment of the state of Israel, he wanted to see a nation rise from the smeltery. Yes, to learn the lessons of being humbled, but to then go about and acquire wealth. So we could be that or goyim, that light to the nations that Yeshiyahu says we are supposed to be. So we see Israel today. I don't know if this is exactly what Rav Cook meant, but I suppose it's somewhat related. We're a leader in technology, a leader in medical research, a leader in agriculture. You know, the, the famous, you know, it's, a, it's been a long time since it, w- it was first discovered, but growing, growing grapefruits in the desert and how we've exported that knowledge. And with all of that trade and commerce in the global market, the deeper reason that we have this wealth, that we have this knowledge, that we have this savvy to be in the world is to do what Avraham did with his wealth. Is to bring people closer to the knowledge of Hashem. So that's why Avraham would have said to God, but you didn't keep the last part of the pasuk. 
Because if they just come out and they're free, that would have been for them good. And they would have had their little shepherd, their little herd, their little flock, their little few acreage of land, and they would have lived, quote, happily ever after. But that's not what I'm about, Avraham could say to God. That's not what you wanted me to be about and my nation. So you have to fulfill, you have to fulfill the Rechush Gadol. They have to come out with that. So yes, in our own journeys, in our own journeys, seek wealth, seek success. Seek it with humility. Combine, combine the humility that we learned from being in our own prison, in our own enslaved spiritual, mental, emotional space. And in, in throughout history, even in that physical space. But just use it for what it's there for, which is how to approach achieving wealth. Achieving wealth is wonderful. The Lubavitcher Rebbe, Zechat Tzadik Levracha, there was one for bringing. <clears throat> he said, right now, anyone who stands up, I'm going to give a, a blessing for abundant wealth. What do you think happened? I mean, this is like a Fabringen, a Hidvadut, where there's thousands and thousands of Hasidim. What do you think was the first response? Let's say you're in that you're in that group, and here's this Sadiq who you believe, who you believe can do this and give this blessing for abundant he meant physical wealth. I will give a blessing right now. <laughs> What, what what would some of you do? I'd stand, stand up. up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good for you. Most people look to their left, look to their right, and stay, and they stay, they remain seated. A few people did exactly what you just said. They stood right up. They didn't look right. They didn't look left. They stood right up. I don't know. I mean, I forget how the story, 10 people, whatever it is, these people became very, very wealthy. You know, what I, what I didn't think... And no one else did in that room at that time. What I hear you saying in, this, in, in, in this, this piece is really what the, the purpose of the wealth is to become expansive in life and in spirit and to not stay in that contracted state of, of enslavement and that the that the wealth, in, in a certain way, is, um, it doesn't have to be literal wealth, but if you have wealth in spirit, and an expanded spirit, then you can um, be in that world of trading, and being with other people of other nations, and so on, because you're open, and you're welcoming, and you're wanting to learn, and share, and so on. Yes. Yes. And there's danger in I would think there would be some danger in, in interpreting this a little too literally. Well, <laughs> well it, this is why Rav Cook says this is exactly why he teaches us that it did not become a commandment because it was a means to a much greater end. The, the, the purpose is not every Jew should become a millionaire. The purpose is every Jew somehow can go about one's journey 
where they feel wealthy, where they feel wealthy and then enabled and resourced and informed enough in their own journey to go into the world and negotiate and and be and communicate and be very much in the world as a person who, you know, when you a person walks into the room, not a person who's arrogant, but a person who has what is the perfect combination, humbled confidence. That's what we are to strive for. So we can walk in the world with surety because we're holding on to God. And God wants us to dress nicely, stand with good posture. I mean that both spiritually and physically. And to go about our lives where we can feel comfortable with humanity, with humankind, with God's world. That is wealth. Rather than from a place of scarcity or from a place of fear. That's part of changing that slave mentality to just get me out of here. I just want to get out. I just want to get out. Give me a morsel of bread. I don't care. I just want to be free. And that's only the beginning. That's only the beginning. So on that note, I bless all of us that Hashem HaKadosh Baruch Hu, as he puts us into our own foreign lands where we feel enslaved and subjugated to our own inner demons, that not only is it temporary and we are freed from that, but we come out of that. We come out of that experience with wealth. Thank you. Thank you for downloading this podcast. For more original Torah content, visit almud.pardes.org.